Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, CTC focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get an exclusive 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout. Is the U.S. economy half full or half empty? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Michael Kao, CEO of Akinthos Capital Management, co-host of the podcast Chaos Theory. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hey, great to be back. See, it's great Thank to have you. you back. Also goes uh, on Twitter. Many of you know him as Urban Cowboy, which is one of the best handles ever. I love it every time I see it. Uh, we haven't talked in a while, so just... Just give me, bring me up to date. What's top of mind for you? What are you focused on these days? Well, I guess your your byline is a good way to start, right? Like, is the economy half full or half empty? And let me just say that I I think it depends on who you ask, and and that goes to right to the heart of some of the thoughts that have been percolating with me, which which is. <sighs> I've been saying for a while that we're we had this vodka Red Bull economy, right? Where where you've got um, Janet Yellen and the various uh, legislations uh, that are pouring on the fiscal stimulus, even as the Fed has been pouring on the monetary depressant. And so the problem is when you have two mixologists in the room, you start making a pretty nasty tasting cocktail eventually, <laughs> um, and and so. Yeah, so so I think that's the issue here because when you talk about the the bifurcation and the you know who perceive who who are the haves and have-nots. Well, the haves uh, in the U.S. economy, at least, are those that are asset owners generally with little to no leverage. Um, I think a lot of the reason why the the Mag Seven or maybe the Mag Six now have done so well is that they generally are free cash flow machines with unlevered uh, balance sheets, right? Um, but the have-nots clearly are uh, those sectors that have high leverage, high floating rate leverage, uh, which would include some of uh, the um, lower to middle class uh, consumers that are living hand to mouth and have a lot of floating rate credit card debt, right? So I think that's that's the internal bifurcation that you're seeing in the U.S., but you know the other the other thing that I think makes for a very confusing macro backdrop is we've been in this. If you if you visualize uh, a a sort of two by two matrix of you know inflation versus unemployment, we've been in this low inflation, low unemployment utopia. Uh, call it since the mid '90s, and I think that that's due to a combination of high productivity growth and a once-in-a-lifetime demographic dividend coming out of China in terms of it exporting its uh, labor deflation to the world, right? We've had these twin tailwinds 
uh, that have fueled Fed policy, et cetera. They're, like essentially, recessions became uh, uh, an endangered species, right? Because every recession was fixable by uh, monetary easing with no uh, inflationary consequences. Mm. Um, now, here's what I think is uh, uh, presents some food for thought. I think that even though uh, you know technology-enabled productivity growth is probably going to continue, right? Maybe in the decade or decades ahead, it becomes a push against the reversal of that once-in-a-lifetime demographic dividend coming out of China. Mm. And so it's it's I don't think it's unreasonable to consider that we might be out of that low inflation, low unemployment uh, utopia quadrant and migrating towards another not so uh, great quadrant, which is the higher inflation, higher unemployment dystopian quadrant. And I note that, you know, when you hear the various uh, folks clamoring for immediate rate cuts, they're almost always the folks that are in that um, that high leverage uh, bucket that are having problems, like obviously like in commercial real estate, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I'll note that since 2008, right, we've been in what I call this YOLO period of extremely low real rates. Um, and now that real rates are just mildly restrictive at 1.69%. The markets extrapolated three dovish dots from the December FOMC into six to eight cuts at, at peak, right? Uh, even though the Fed just really hasn't even been presented this, this dilemma of having to choose between its uh, dual mandates of you know fighting inflation and maintaining low unemployment yet. So so that you know that's I, I I'm writing a piece that I'm going to put out this weekend. I'm basically saying that you know those ripping dots are going to become dipping dots um, because I think that the I, I think it's with core inflation still running at an annualized three point nine percent. Now, granted, if you you know there are various economists that are saying, oh, you 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 know why look at the twelve month? Why if if you look at the three or the six month, we're already at the two percent target, et cetera. I, I, I'd like to think that I'm trying to explore um, under the hood a little bit deeper. Um, a couple, last year, I wrote a piece in May, I think. I called it the Four Horsemen of Econo- U.S. Economic Resilience. And those four horsemen are, one, you have a uh, – they're, they're intrin- intrinsic to the U.S. There are some structural demographic factors that might be uh, causing – uh, sticky inflation on the labor and shelter side of things. The second horseman is this massive fiscal tailwind, and I and I always like to remind people that between the three um, bills, the recent bills, the uh, bipartisan Infrastructure Act, the Chips Act, and the um, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, that's it. That's a combined total of two point two trillion of fiscal earmarks. Uh, slated to be spent between the next five to ten years. That's huge. Um, and then, and then the third uh, horseman is relative rate insensitivity, which goes back to the haves versus have-nots, right? Because um, this presents yet another bifurcation: the U.S. consumer um, and the U.S. corporation are far less floating rate sensitive than the rest of the world. 
So this mm-hmm. second bifurcation I'm talking about is being t- between the intrinsic uh, uh, risks to the U.S. economy versus the extrinsic risks to the rest of the world. I think the rest of the world is far more exposed to uh, floating rates and and you know uh, from that standpoint. So that's the third horseman. The four hor- fourth horseman, of course, is. Um, relative uh, U.S. energy independence, although that's becoming less of an issue now that oil prices are coming down. Um, so the, the the last to, to round this whole idea out, and the reason why I think the uh, the uh, ripping dots will become the dipping dots, meaning that I, I really think that at the end of the day, the Fed has a has a much higher bogey for easing this time because. When you think about the signal embedded in that first cut, it's not just cutting 25 basis points. It's a package deal because most people expect that once they cut, it's going to be part of the start of an easing cycle that at least encompasses three to four more cuts, right? Mm. So the Fed has got to consider that package deal going in. And do they have enough confidence that that? All with all of those, what I call structurally inflationary dry tinder factors in place, do they have the confidence that, um, you know, a pre like a cut now will not restoke that dry tinder that that inflationary dry tinder? Mm-hmm. I have some serious doubts uh, that they'll, they'll be able to uh, control inflation if they cut this this early. So I I completely poo-pooed the idea of the uh, the March cuts even before this recent uh, FOMC. At this point, I I I even think that um you know not only will the Fed uh, likely disappoint the market from the standpoint of the six to eight cuts, I think they could even disappoint from the standpoint of the of the uh, three dots that they that they uh, presented thus far. We'll see. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. That, so I, I just want to say that that is... Um, such a great, I mean, Ralph just in the in the chat just dropped. Um, his core argument is uh cogent, concise, and believable. And I think that's right. And I would just add that a lot of times when you talk to people in the inflation camp, there's something that doesn't stick together. There's this like 1970s spiking energy situation that it that just seems like you know, it's easy to take the other side of that and just say, well, the demographics aren't there and retrace it back. What you just walked us through, Michael, I think was a much more nuanced, interesting explanation of why we might be in a different regime. And you brought up some points that we haven't heard a lot before. We haven't heard them put together before. So thank you for that. That was amazing. Um, And I think everyone agrees that's listening. Um, It just gives us a lot to talk about. The first thing I want to ask you is, do you think we might be in a situation where we get no rate cuts this year? 
Is that possible based on what you're seeing in the economy? You know, I do think that's a possibility. I think there's at least a 10% probability of something like that happening um, because, and and that's totally out of consensus, right? Even because, because, because when you, when you consider what the Fed is saying, um, they're all saying that, you know, with, they, they, there's almost unanimity in the idea that they're going to start the easing cycle this year. But, um, you know, I, I have yet to, you know, with, with all of those, those four horsemen factors aside, we have yet to even talk about two key things that I've been thinking about, which are one, one, um, one, one okay, so when I talk, when, when you go back to my dry tinder sort of mental model, right, all these, all these structural factors that might be in place that could get reignited, well, what could those sparks be? Well, in 2021, one of the sparks was re- resurgent oil uh, inflation, all right? We had that spark, and that's kind of, you know, I turned, I turned, I was very, very bullish at the beginning of 2021 in oil uh, and turned bearish probably around April of 22. I still remain uh, bearish, although less less so when than when oil was you know in the 90s and close to 100 but but other sparks remain right what about the spiking freight rates right now which mm-hmm. yes that's an extra that's an extrinsic geopolitical shock but that's a real shock what about and this is something that no no FOMC meeting has yet talked about which is shocking to me what about all of those strikes that have led to the all of these much higher uh, wages that have been locked into like many, many sectors of the economy. It wasn't just Hollywood. It was basically, you know, in the, in the healthcare space and the airlines, in the autos. Um, so, so there are all these factors that make me wonder, okay, when you, especially when you consider the bogey of, remember I said, it's a package deal. It's not just cutting 25 basis points. The signal quality of yeah, cutting that's means very that interesting. Are, and that is they're really about true. to embark on a cycle, right? Yeah. So if so, so if they're if are they gonna are they gonna do they have the confidence that they're not going to restoke uh, that dry tinder by by ushering in this new regime that the market's going? I mean, look, when you go back to just the December rhetorical pivot alone, you think about the power of the signaling. And just just a mere introduction of three dovish dots, what that did to the market, it created one of the largest easings of financial condition yeah. uh, ever. Yeah, right? they just flew right from the mention <laughs> of it to, right. to factoring in six. So I think you're absolutely right. And the <clears throat> Fed certainly must have guessed that it would be something like that. But now they know for sure that if they go for that first rate cut and that at a time when there's already six priced in. So, you know, we're... It's very hard to see how they're going to be as measured and cautious as the Fed keeps imploring everyone to be. Uh, and what, 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 one more thing I'll mention is that, look, what changes my mind on all of this is if there is credit contagion. Ah, Usually, this brings us to a question that a smart viewer okay. already asked. And okay, that was also right. on my mind. So, but what, the, one of the things I love <clears> that you've created, you've created a picture of the sort of structural conditions that are likely not going to change. And then we have to look at more temporary ones that you say are either going to help or hurt, ignite or dampen this situation. But being aware of the terra firma you're on now is really important if you're thinking about that. That's how I'm thinking when you're explaining this. This is the macro sort of ground, you know, foundation that you're looking at. 
And now we have to look at what can, what are these factors? So we talked about what could ignite it. The other flip side of that seems to be some kind of credit situation. Um, and Macro Butler is asking, Michael, do you think we will see a wave of bank failure over the next few weeks and that the Fed will be forced to continue the BTFP or another alphabet soup shadow liquidity injection rather than cut rates? Or even if that'll force their hand to cut rates, I'll just add on to that. Yeah, well, so look, back in March, I, I basically said that I, I thought that this that there were during the depths of the fears of during during that whole Silicon Valley bank crisis, there are all these comparisons to, oh, is this going to be like another 2008 type of contagion type situation? And I and I said, you know, I don't think so. It doesn't. The signs are not there for a contagion and that. I, I felt that the, the introduction of the BTFP um, corroborated my fee- my own feeling that it was going to be a a precision surgical tool, a rifle shot uh, way of dealing with this, as opposed to a shotgun bazooka way of approaching it. Right, which that that part turned out to be tr- uh, turned out to be uh, correct, uh, but but. Um, so, so the question is, what would change my mind now? And is there another credit contagion uh, in the cards? I, you know, to answer that specific question, I, I have no idea whether or not there's going to be another domino effect of, uh, with uh, regional banks. If it does, I think that they will probably bring back that rifle shot approach. There definitely does not seem to be any sort of broad-based credit uh, deterioration. There's definitely, like, again, that when you t- go back to that bifurcation I talked about, right? There are definite signs of stress in amongst the highly leveraged sectors of the economy, as you would expect, mm-hmm. um, and those that are exposed to floating rate risk. But th- this is by no means a uh, a contagion. And you know some some interesting um, data points that I got from some conversations last week. Um, I was talking to one of the largest managers of CLO equity out there, and as you probably know, collateralized loan obligations own about half of the outstanding senior secured leverage loans out there. Mm. And, and so they have to keep tabs on, on, on default rates, et cetera. But the last 12 months, uh, you know, leveraged loan default rates, which are at the top of the capital stack, right? Senior secured leverage loan default rates are still at one and a half percent, which is roughly half the long-term average. That's extremely benign. I mean, knock on wood, right? The other thing that's interesting with this, you always hear about private credit. Mm. Private credit is now a, I, I was shocked to hear this, but it's now a six, it's now $1.6 trillion market with only about $1 trillion deployed. There's still $600 billion of, of um, sidelined uh, cash, I guess, or dry powder waiting to refinance uh, sort of uh, zombie capital stacks, mm. right? And so, so, so this, and, and, and so I said, so, so in my piece that I'm writing this weekend, I said, look, I mean, you already have this horseman number three of relatively less rate uh, sensitive U.S. consumers and U.S. corporations. But when you add on top of that horseman number two, which is that fiscal tailwind that's lifting kind of almost all ships and this this situation where we where in the credit markets we've got this huge amount of private credit waiting in the wings to refinance um even uh poorly positioned capital structures i don't see at least right now i don't see 
any of the conditions for a broad-based credit contagion. And so, mm. so I don't see the Fed uh, necessarily jumping up and down to want to uh, start an aggressive easing cycle. Yeah, and 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 I think the the other thing to to consider is that what would happen to their credibility if they did cut and therefore signaled this the beginning of an easing cycle, only to see um, uh, core inflation reignite and then three or six months down the line having to hike again. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, that he said he disaster. said a million times they don't want he's not the Arthur <clears throat> Burns, right? He's 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 invoked that and and to go from a lot of soft data and all of a sudden we had this streak that end of last week, beginning of this week of re, what looks to be strong data. Now you can argue some of it may be lagging, but I mean that's enough to probably put the fear in them that that that's the worst case scenario. So that would presumably have reinforced that that instinct to be very cautious when they go, which they've all been sent out to tell the markets in the last in the last you know four or five days. I mean they've all been singing off the same song sheet. So I I I think this presents an interesting that that other bifurcation I talked about. The first bifurcation I talked about was between the haves and have nots intrinsic to the US economy, right? But the bigger bifurcation are is the bifurcation between intrinsic risks and extrinsic risks. And so so basically where my head is at is that because of relative U.S. economic resilience due to all these aforementioned factors, it, it makes intrinsic risks like a like, like big domestic credit blow up less likely, but it increases the chances of an accident in some other part of the world by virtue of our favorite thing, the U.S. dollar wrecking, dollar wrecking ball. ball. Because, yeah. Right, because, because if the Fed really is forced by the data to stay high for longer. I, I think that every central bank around the world so far, they talk a tough game, but it's getting to the point where the economic divergences are large enough that they need to figure out whether or not they can really afford to follow the Fed or do they need to capitulate before the Fed. And my thesis for, the, for, a, for, the, for a while now is that there is a potentially stage two to this U.S. dollar wrecking ball. The first stage we saw was, was uh, you know, in, in 2022, right, when the Fed uh, embarked on this aggressive uh, hiking cycle and essentially outhawked the rest of the world, right, sooner, uh, sooner and higher than the rest of the world. But stage two, potentially, of the dollar wrecking ball comes from the rest of the world outdubbing the Fed because they have no choice. So, uh, you know, there... Um, um, there was a there was a chart today that I that I retweeted. I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, if you if you just look at um, the relative rates of uh, GDP growth among the G seven nations, I mean, w- when you look at it, 
there it, just no other major geography comes uh, comes close. And then what's really stark is you see that Germany's uh, Germany it looks like they're already in recession, yeah. and Germany is is the largest uh, economy of the EU, right? So. So I think so Michael, the chances you, for an extrinsic problem are greater than an intrinsic problem. Right, but but how quickly does that you know that external situation become a problem for the U.S. and the Fed? We know what, what we saw during the Great Financial Crisis sort of it emanated here, but it went everywhere. Counterparty risk, credit liquidity started to shut down because everybody's exposed to everybody. Doug asking, what about a collapse in the shadow banking market? Would the Fed be forced to move with a non-bank crisis? I mean, it's not just U.S. banks that are too big to fail. You know, there is an interconnectedness to the global financial market. You can argue that, you know, China's problems can be contained. But, you know, you see a big player. We saw that in long-term capital management, right? There, there are instances where there's enough counterparty risk. Um, and, and everyone knows now what happens. What, you know, we've got that ghost of the great financial crisis. Do you worry that the Fed will be forced to take measures because of something externally happening? Well, um, I guess I that's do. the unknown, I, you know. I, I see here, this is where geopolitics, it's very important to pay attention to geopolitics too, because I think that there's a reason why we have uh, swap lines to all of our, you know, allies and friendly countries. And there's a reason why we don't have swap lines to the PBOC, right? Our greatest geopolitical rival. So, um, so while, you know, some people are somewhat surprised that, uh, you know, China's economy falling apart have haven't really had real repercussions yet uh, to the U.S., but I would argue that, you know, we're, that the U.S. economy um, is far, it, it's, it, we're not big net exporters, first of all. So, um, so the collapse of the Chinese consumer uh, actually in a way, benefits the U.S. Right? Um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, it, it sounds kind of heartless to say that, but it, it actually benefits the U.S. from the standpoint of, well, the, it, it brings down uh, commodity prices globally, and that's that's the other thing I wanted to mention, which is oil. The 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 my, the biggest tell to me uh, that this idea that extrinsic risks are greater than intrinsic risks is. When you look at global global procyclical commodities like oil and the other uh, industrial base metals, um, you know, for I had been bearish oil um, all year um, and half of last year, and I've been saying that every you need to fade every geopolitical risk because not only is there a large amount of overhead spare capacity in that market, the problem is that when you have an overtight Fed. Uh, uh, transmit its monetary policy by way of a strong dollar to the rest of the world. All things being equal, you will see demand for global commodities fall. So I think there are too many oil uh, bulls that are just focused on the strength of the U.S. economy. Well, yes, the U.S. economy accounts for 20% of uh, global oil demand. But what about the other 80%? So in other words, a strong 20% can't uh, make up for a flagging rest of the world's 80% demand, you see? So, yeah. so you have to pay attention to the global, uh, globally pro-cyclical 
commodities because they are a tell on how the rest of the world is doing with respect to our exporting of tight monetary conditions by way of a stronger dollar. Yeah. So against this backdrop, uh, let's talk a little bit about where U.S. markets are because you paint this really compelling picture and a good argument about why the Fed is not only going to be as cautious as they say, but may actually, you know, not deliver the rate cuts that are priced in, have to walk, the market will have to walk some of them back, if not all of them back, you know, maybe a, a, a hawk or more hawkish Fed. What do you make of the fact that U.S. equities, S&P is knocking on 5,000, you know, we're at these record levels. We have bond yields that have moved back up a little bit after those strong data releases, but they're still just above 4%. What do you, where, do, do, where, where do you, where should, what, what seems sensible for U.S. Mar- for stocks and bonds based on the scenario that you're looking at? Well, so I, so on, on this regard, I, I feel, um, I, I feel torn because on the one hand, you've got, you've got these conditions that are, that are strong domestic conditions, right? Um, and, and, you know, they are, you know, so in a way you're, you're seeing the, you're seeing those bullish aspects of a, of U.S. economic resilience being reflected in, you know, earnings beats and uh, even expanding multiples, et cetera. The question though, I wonder about is again, you go, you go, you go back to this vodka Red Bull thesis. Um, if it then manifests in a Fed that's, that ha- is forced to stay higher or high for longer, um, there, there necessarily has to be a growth slowdown at some point. And so, are are the are the expanded multiples and the valuations appropriate at this stage of the game, especially when you consider the significantly increased cost of capital? Well, you know, I it, I'm I'm torn on this front because my, the way I run my book is still the way I I used to run my hedge fund, which is I feel like I'm trying to make money the hard way, which is I'm trying to find idiosyncratic bets that are either event driven or or value based uh, types of bets but i hedge against macro risks by having you know uh, you know puts up and down the capital stack for instance right and you know these these uh, having equity puts on uh, today i just tweeted out i said look when you buy insurance it always looks like a waste of money um, when things are going well but what buying insurance does for you is that it increases your chances of at least having a chair when the music stops. Yeah. I don't know when the music stops. I really don't. Um, but but the, but the the tricky part of this is to not let insurance costs eat you alive, right? And so that's easier said than done. Um, um, but uh, but yeah, I don't I don't have a, a good answer for it. I, I feel like geez, I could have. Uh, it, had I not, it, it's always tempting to go see what performance would have been had I not bought any insurance and embraced uh, 
you know, it went balls to the wall, levered long, but you know, I, I, it's just, just not, well, my this is why, this is why zone. you sit here in the wisdom of your chair, still speaking to us today, Michael, because you know, you're not, you resist that temptation and stick to your framework. <laughs> I've been, I've been through too many cycles to know that, uh, you know, nothing, uh, nothing lasts forever. And this particular cycle has the earmarks of a combination of the, uh, you know, the the internet uh, bubble era, as well as the the lead up to it. That, I guess the key question to me that that I'm always wondering myself is: Is this 1996 or is it 2000? Yeah, I'm not, and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's come up a lot, and I will tell you that many many have we've been having this discussion. You know, over the really since the year started, a lot of people turn the corner hoping for some clarity. And it's just a really, really tough environment. It's a really tough environment to figure out for people like yourself who've been at it forever, you know. But I I, I just want to underscore that I hope all of our listeners really understood what a master class this was in understanding how you have a macro point of view and a framework um, about what you think might happen, some of the secular trends, some of the structural things that Michael talked about, but then also making sure that you're operating um, you know, not from the hip, right? Like Michael's got a got a system that he uses to make sure he thinks about insurance, he uses the option market, all these things that we talk about in the academy, so that you live to fight another day. So it's a it's a very complex process, but if you break it down, um, and especially lean on the wisdom of folks like Michael, you know, you can get through it. But it seems like a lot of information coming at people. So it's um it's tough. It's tough out there, Michael. Not if you're law and video. <laughs> that's right, which some people are and are laughing, but you want to keep those, you want to keep those profits. We could, we would be in touched on, on tech in the mag seven. We're going to have to leave that for another time because believe it or not, we're out of time already, but that was just fantastic. It was so fun to have you on the daily briefing. I know you're on, you. on other parts of real vision with us um, and are going to be again in the near future, but it was really great to be able to share your views with this broader, broader audience. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Great to catch up with you, Michael. Thank you so much. And thanks for the smart questions. Feel free to post in the comments. We look at them. We'll get them to Michael. We'll get the feedback and we'll keep the conversation going because he brought up so many points that we're going to have to touch on. And we're also going to be talking about why research um, like the kind Michael does is so important. That's We're going we're gonna to do something special on that in the coming weeks. So keep your eyes out for that. Thanks, everybody. It's been a really interesting week. We've had some fun shaking it up on the Daily Briefing. Hope you're enjoying it. We will be back same time tomorrow. So take care and good luck out there. Whether you're a crypto newbie, an established investor, or operating a business in Web3, tax season can be an absolute headache, but it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software platform founded in 2018 by brothers Shane and Tim Burnett, crypto fanatics who were fed up with the complexity of doing their taxes. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on simplifying complex transactions, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as 1,000 other integrations. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Finally, 2024 is a year when crypto investors can do their taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at realvision.com forward slash CTC and get a 30% discount with the code RV30 at checkout.